voz. Welcome to Audio Journal's reading of Yankee Magazine. You'll hear stories about the people and places that make New England special. Mountains, farmland, salty sea coasts, history, sports teams, universities, cultural attractions, food, and more. I'm Mike Krasner, and today I will be reading from the March-April 2024 issue of Yankee Magazine. Thank you for joining me. Our first story is from Inside Yankee by Mel Allen. He is editor of Yankee Magazine. And he begins with The Talk of Every Town. On Thanksgiving Day, five friends and I gathered for a traditional meal. We met in one couple's townhouse that we all agreed was a rental find in our southern New Hampshire town. Just steps from Main Street, it featured a porch, a stylish interior, and across the street, a pretty library and a waterfall tumbling into the river. For much of our time, we talked about houses, where we might live one day if we uprooted ourselves, and how impossible it has become to find what most of us would call affordable. We remembered our own first houses, and how a $50,000 mortgage once felt as though we had suddenly taken on the weight of the world. And we asked how today's younger generation could even hope to own their own place one day. Our conversation, I am certain, mirrored many others across the country. I know we face big existential problems. Climate change, the fate of our democracy, what an AI future may hold, but what I hear people talk about the most lies closer to the surface. Where can they or their children call home when it seems out of reach for so many? But the dream is still there. We love to travel. We love sitting at a cafe or strolling around a harbor or walking through a historic neighborhood. Even as visitors, we long to stick around. For our Best Places to Live feature, on page 54, we summon that dream. We've gathered up favorite places we think you'd want to know, too. Maybe you'll live in one of them someday. Maybe not. But the search often brings rewards of its own. Also in this issue, we invite you to step inside an extraordinary project at the University of Maine. The ingenuity of its engineers has led to the promise of thousands of efficient, affordable, 3D-printed homes, each constructed from local wood waste. The house with 3D vision is on page 88. The project provides a glimpse into a time when we embrace living in a new way, using technology our forebears could never have emerged. And in the Hardwick Blueprint on page 70, we visit a small town in northern Vermont that's imbued with a spirit of community and cooperation and looking out for one another. You will come away from this story knowing that what makes any place truly special is the connections we make with those around us. Maybe one day our children will delight in living in a cozy, affordable house that took shape as if by magic in a giant lab. And when they gather with friends, they will reflect on when they feared they would never know true roots or truly belong to a place. Now look at us, they will say. That's again from Mel Allen, editor of Yankee Magazine. We begin now by part one of the house with 3D vision. An experimental home created by UMaine engineers offers hope for the affordable housing crisis and for the future of Maine's timber industry by Julia Shipley. 
Beyond a vast parking lot brimming with cars and a field filled with last summer's goldenrod, the printed house huddles by itself, a one-story structure with a roof that curves like shoulders, diminutive compared with the magisterial buildings spread across the University of Maine in Orono, a rare campus designed by Frederick Law Olmsted. This structure, a cross between a cottage and a Quonset hut, wasn't built in a conventional way. That is to say, over the course of months, using lumber and nails, sawed and hammered by people wearing tool belts and clinging to ladders. It was three-dimensionally printed by a futuristic-looking machine using bio-based materials, namely ten tons of sawdust. Last March, as a cold rain fell, I ducked inside. The foyer was warm, cozy, and immediate reprieve. I noticed its walls, which aren't smooth, but textured like horizontal corduroy, and feel ever so slightly cat's tongue rough to the touch. Another novelty are the corners. Instead of meeting at crisp right angles, its walls arc into the ceiling. Otherwise, the one-bedroom, one-bathroom house has a familiar layout and is furnished as if it already belongs to someone with a yen for neutral hues. A beige blanket drapes across a queen bed with matching pillows. An ivory-colored wool rug spreads across the floor. There's a little desk nook with an open laptop near a window. In the bathroom, a white porcelain sink and tub gleam. A tray of mugs basks on the kitchen counter, and a gray crock of cooking utensils stands by the stove. Natural light pours through several tall windows at the front and back of the house. Across from the kitchen area, a manila-colored couch and two matching chairs cluster by a coffee table. Above, a widescreen TV plays a video loop of the house's fabrication. In the sped-up time-lapse video, an enormous robotic pen is in frantic constant motion, pivoting, shifting, swerving, as its nib deposits contiguous beds of ink. The ink? Sawdust. As the pen moves, the house magically emerges, a gingerbread-colored wall rising from the laboratory floor. There are seemingly no people on the premises, but if you scan the footage carefully, a phantom-like man wearing a blue hard hat and safety jacket pops in sporadically to inspect the print as the house materializes. This 600-square-foot abode, which has hunkered behind Humane's Advanced Structures and Composites Center, also known as ASCC, since its installation in November 2022, has stood strong and snug through a range of Maine's weathers. Amid heavy snowstorms, a minus-30-degree polar vortex winds over 50 miles an hour, and a wave of steamy summer days, it's maintained a constant temperature of 60 to 70 degrees, courtesy of its deep insulation and two heat pumps. The world's first bio-based 3D printed house, the brainchild of two men who grew up on opposite sides of the world, was created to address two seemingly unrelated yet equally urgent issues. Maine's dearth of affordable housing and its crumbling timber industry. But as I found out, the story of this house cannot be told without knowing how and why it is here, and why Maine's infinite forest is at the heart of an ingenious plan to reimagine life for thousands 
of the state's residents. We continue now with the house with 3D vision, part two. A few miles east of the printed house is the main forest and logging museum. Situated at the end of a dirt road within the university's experimental forest, it's a quiet spot. Six people a day is as busy as it gets, says the museum's seasonal caretaker, Kevin Jarek. But to those who poke their heads into the main office asking for a map, Jarek recommends touring the reproduction of a 1700s-era sawmill. Down the trail, across the covered bridge, there it is a timber frame structure smelling like fresh milled lumber. Made entirely from trees, it's a building whose function is to mill yet more trees, to construct more buildings. And inside, at the point where freshly cut boards spill away from the saw blade, stand two barrels ready to collect the humble residue, sawdust. Two centuries ago, when Maine separated from Massachusetts and became its own state in 1820, vast northern timberlands were suddenly up for grabs, drawing investors and fortune hunters. Lumberjacks felled white pane, hemlock, spruce, fir, and beech from Maine forests furnishing logs that were floated down the Penobscot River to Bangor. By 1830, there were 300 sawmills surrounding Bangor, and soon the city's fame as a wood producer spread around the world. In the 20th century, paper mills fed by wood pulp became Maine's biggest employers. But time has not been kind. Today, the timber industry is faltering, and most of the state's mills have shuttered, all while the average price for the state's limited housing stock has been driven up by out-of-staters who relocated to Maine during the pandemic. In downtown Bangor, beyond an entrance sign reading, Helping Today, Building Tomorrow, two receptionists at Penquist are fielding endless requests for housing assistance. A non-profit organization whose focus is eliminating poverty, Penquist oversees 50 different social services, of which 20% are directly tied to housing issues. Home is key, reads a pamphlet in the waiting area. While I am there, a man in his 50s tells a receptionist, He's been living in his car, but now it's been impounded. A woman carrying a toddler on each hip explains, I need a place to stay. A lady in her 80s is looking for help because she's been evicted. New owners purchased the apartment complex where she's lived for decades, and they've raised the rent far beyond what she can afford on her fixed income. Later, with snow on the ground and temperatures in the upper 20s, I drive around Bangor with Penquist's housing development director, Jason Bird. He points out a modest two-story with a for-sale sign. For sale sign. They're asking for $185,000, he says. Probably two years ago, that would have been less than $100,000. According to a 2022 report by the Joint Center for Housing Studies at Harvard, the income needed to buy an average Maine home is $130,000. But the report also found that in Maine's biggest city, Portland, the median income is less than Less than a mile away, we pass one of several sprawling encampments that in recent years have hosted as many as 70 people. There are multiple tents and garbage bags and plastic coolers and other items clustered around the snowy field. 
For years, we've known about the housing crisis, Bird tells me, but now everyone else sees it. And after my tour with Bird, while leaving my downtown Bangor Airbnb, I realize three people have spent the night sleeping across the street by the front steps of the Penobscot County Federal Credit Union. Yet, as Heidi LeBlanc, Heidi LeBlanc, Penquist's chief operating officer notes, there are small wins in this crisis. Over the past six months, Penquist has housed 20 families, helped five people avoid eviction, and gotten three individuals into temporary housing. An influx of new, affordable, and efficient small homes could change the lives of families they see every day. Mark Weisendanger's family had been involved in Maine's lumber industry for more than a century. However, for the past eight years, he has worked as the development director for Maine Housing, a 50-plus-year-old state agency that functions like a $2 billion bank to help people buy, rent, repair, and heat their homes. In 2019, Weisendanger was walking in a parade alongside a float conveying the world's largest solid 3D-printed object, a boat created at UMaine's Advanced Structures and Composites Center, when he had an idea. In November 2019, he put that idea into an email to Habib Dagger, the ASCC's founding executive director and a professor of structural engineering at UMaine. Wisendanger explained how his agency funds nearly all of the affordable housing created in Maine, which at the time needed at least 20,000 affordable units. But given the dramatic rise in construction costs, coupled with the labor shortage, Demographically, Maine is the nation's oldest state. Maine housing was able to realize only 200 to 300 housing units per year, Wisendanger wrote. At that rate, the state's demand for affordable housing wouldn't be met for a century. An obvious way to tackle the problem would be to expand the construction and labor force. But Wisendanger thought advances like 3D printers might soon make those positions obsolete. Maybe, he proposed, this was an opportunity to create a new type of housing, using new Maine-based, wood-based technologies that would be durable and energy-efficient and would benefit the local economy. Furthermore, what if there were a way to reduce transportation costs for materials and labor? And what if the solution could showcase main innovation while also fulfilling a public need? Dagger was intrigued. Born in Guinea and raised in Beirut, where he turned his bedroom into a chemistry lab, he had earned three advanced degrees in civil and structural engineering before arriving at UMaine in the mid-1980s. Not long after, he was walking along Portland's seaport when he noticed heaps of hemlock trunks. I guess they're going overseas for somebody to make a product and sell it back to us, a dock worker told him. This led Dagger to apply for and receive the first of hundreds of grants to build a laboratory on campus where, among other initiatives, he and his team could develop new products including wood composites that utilized Bain's timber, Maine's timber. In 2008, for instance, they used raw materials from Maine's forests to produce a blast-and-fragment-resistant tent for the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers. Subsequently, the ASCC's engineers began innovating with the world's largest 3D printer, earning Guinness Book World Record honors in 2019 
for fabricating the world's largest solid 3D printed object. The same boat that Wizen Danger had seen. That same year they printed a 90 square foot military communications shelter that was designed to fit on the back of a truck. One morning in late 2019, having mulled over Wizendanger's email, Dagger turned to ASCC engineer Scott Tomlinson and asked, Can you print a house in the next two weeks? Tomlinson, a large-framed man who bides his time before speaking, considered the matter. Maybe, he said. The world's first bio-based 3D printed home was executed the same way a student might cram for an exam or churn out a term paper in a series of hyper-focused, largely sleepless, pizza-fueled episodes. By early November 2022, three years after Wisendanger's initial email, Dagger and his team were weeks away from debuting their first-of-its-kind, never-been-tried-before project. Laboring inside the ASCC's hangar-like laboratory at the campus's east end. Over the previous months, Dagger and his team's attempts to address Maine's housing crisis using inexpensive, abundant materials to manufacture a ready-to-inhabit home had been immersed in intense, confidential development. In the lead-up to the prototype's unveiling, however, most of what they had to show for their efforts was a conference table's worth of miniature, one-story bungalows. Fail fast and cheap is one of Dagger's maxims, which explained the dozens of toy-sized printed models, each representing an idea the team had tested on its way to designing a home that was recyclable, but also fire-retardant, and handicap accessible, and met all the building codes. These failures also helped answer key questions, such as whether the house should be printed as a single object or as a series of modules. And if the former were actually doable, how might they transport it to the building site? Or if the latter was desirable, could they fit the modules together with no gaps at the joints? Another of Dagger's slogans, posted in the meeting room next to the 100,000-square-foot lab, reads, None of us is as smart as all of us. Dagger is quick to credit his team for his holy cow inventions, like the bridge in a backpack, actually a hockey bag that contains all the materials necessary to construct a durable, non-corrosive, vehicle-bearing bridge, and that world-record winning boat, three Dear Ego, whose name was inspired by the state motto translated as I Lead. To date, the ASCC has registered 120 patents, created 14 spin-off companies, and won 40 awards for research excellence. With deadline looming, Dagger and his team readied the four modules of the house that they'd printed individually using sawdust milled further into flour and combined with a corn-based binder. It can be confusing, they know, to conceive of printing a house. Visitors to the lab frequently express something along the lines of, how does a printer that spits out pages with words equate to a printer that can spit out a house? Team members explain, think of it like a giant pastry bag that's piping out icing. Days before the November 21 unveiling, each of the modules the living room kitchen, the bedroom, the bath, foyer, and the porch, was hauled from the lab on the back of a flatbed truck and driven to the building site behind the laboratory, overlooking an open field 
backed by a four-acre parking lot. There, a crane moved each module into place, and electricians hooked up the lights and heat pumps. Assembly took half a day. By nightfall on November 20, the once empty, empty patch behind the lab now hosted a printed house. Had you crossed the campus at dusk, you would have seen lights where they had never been, glowing from the windows of the university's newest structure. On an aggressively hot September day in 2023, six months after my first visit, I tagged along on a tour of the printed house. Crossing its threshold, I relished the home's 65-degree coolness. The tour guide explained how, before printing the house, Dagger and his team had tortured the building materials in their lab, subjecting them to prolonged extremes of heat, cold, dryness, and moisture. Embedded sensors in the finished house now collect data about temperature, moisture, and UV effects, part of an ongoing study of how the structure responds to Maine's climate. It's spacious, observed one of the tour participants, Tom Rawson, associate professor at Japan's Nagasaki International University. But prowling the bedroom, he noted, there's not much closet space. Rawson continued his appraisal as if the place was for sale. Given that he's six foot eight with a slouch, his head skimmed the doorway. Could they raise the ceiling, he wondered? I don't want to be bonking my head all the time. And the roof? How does it handle the snow load? The team worked closely with the Portland architectural term to ensure the house met all building codes. To the disappointment of curious visitors, however, insurance laws prohibit overnight guests. Presently, the house has no running water. And while the engineers intended the house to be powered by solar electricity, university officials nixed that idea. So for those in the market to purchase, the ASCC's communications team explains that although the university owns the intellectual property to this prototype, we are never going to be a private housing company. The sign out front proclaims the printed house's true intention, a bold solution to address the nation's affordable housing crisis. Between the front porch of the printed house and the vast commuter-student parking lot, there's a few football fields worth of open space. This cricket and goldenrod-filled swath of land will be the home of U-Maine's factory of the future, slated to break ground this summer. Here, Dagger's team will scale up production. The facility's layout will resemble a next-generation car manufacturing line, Dagger says, and its homes will be built in modules by students trained to operate a building-sized printer. As Weisendanger noted in his initial email to Dagger, the printed house can do more than address an affordable housing problem. It can also address an industry problem. There are millions of tons of wood residuals in the Bangor region alone. The first printed house used 10 tons of it. By Dagger's estimates, there's enough nearby for the new factory to produce 100,000 more. It's a potential supply and demand game changer, not only in Maine, but also throughout New England and beyond. The factory's automated technology will allow for the production of multiple houses in a month's time versus the many months it takes to produce one conventionally built home. Though a partnership with Maine Housing and Penquist, nine of those printed homes are already spoken for 
and will be delivered to a site in Bangor to become the world's first neighborhood of affordable, bio-based printed homes. Sometimes skeptical of technology's promises, I reflect on my visit to the Maine Forest and Logging Museum's Visitor Center, where a black-and-white video plays on a loop in a side room. In the video, a vehicle resembling a train engine chugs through the snow, pulling a series of sleds brimming with main timber. This is the Lombard steam log hauler, invented at the turn of the 20th century by Maine's own Alvin Lombard. Nicknamed Mary Ann, it traveled five miles an hour, had no brakes, and took four people to operate. It replaced the work of 50 horses. Other than a glimpse of a man jabbing a log with a PV, a type of lumberjack tool, there are no people in the video. Instead, it features panning shots of the iron behemoth blasting across the wood's edge, spewing smoke and steam, towing part of the forest. Two of these obsolete machines hunker in the visitor center's back room, where one can gawk at the most enduring aspect of Lombard's invention. In 1900, he patented the long, the log hauler's continuous track tread, which became the prototype for all the tracked vehicles that followed, from the Sherman tank to the Moon rover. I'm so glad they thought to document this, museum caretaker Kevin Jarek said of the nine-minute video. I mean, at the time, this was cutting edge. It strikes me that technology is an elastic word that can be applied to all manner of tools. The PV is technology. Mary Ann is technology. Then I think about the time-lapse documentary video playing in the printed house on an endless loop, and I try to fathom how one day it, too, may become an antique sideshow. Wisendanger's who first lobbed his idea into Dagger's lab just four years ago, looks forward to the day when the factory of the future can 3D print multi-family homes with units that stack upward like Legos, because standalone houses aren't ideal for cities. Yet even with ongoing improvements, the lab's updated extruder head now prints 500 pounds per hour, compared with its original 150 per hour, questions remain. For instance, can the factory achieve a scale and le level of efficiency great enough to drive the cost down? A solution to endemic housing shortage isn't going to happen overnight, Dagger concedes, but in the field where goldenrod ripples and crickets tick off the minutes till winter, an infinity of crumbs from Maine's old forest industry, sawdust, may soon give rise to a new one. So we begin of part one of the Hardwick Blueprint, how one Vermont town's quirky civic experiment became a primer on community building, by Rowan Jacobson. It was a crisp October afternoon in Hardwick, a hard-scrabble town of 2,900 souls in Vermont's Northeast Kingdom, and the door to the civic standard was wide open. Kids on their way home from school helped themselves to free muffins. A woman with jittery hands took advantage of the Internet access to figure out how to catch a bus to the next town for her job training program. A couple in Carhartts picked up some free tulip bulbs to plant in preparation for a spring tulip festival, a Hardwick tradition from the 1950s that the Civic was hoping to revive. Posters from the Civic's eclectic series of events, concerts, bonfires, trivia nights, haiku workshops, karaoke, lined the walls. 
The Civic Standard occupies a ramshackle red clapboard building on Main Street filled with threadbare couches, rickety tables, and random coffee mugs. Like a college dormitory lounge, it exudes the comforting vibe of a place you can't possibly mess up any further. It was the home of the Hardwick Gazette for 133 years, until the newspaper's new owner stopped printing during COVID and eventually handed the building to the Civic to support its weird experiment, as co-founder Rose Friedman puts it. Vermont's media, art organizations, and community leaders all agree the civic standard is something new and vital, although nobody is sure what the heck it is. When I pressed her, Rose described it as an exploration of what might happen when you combine art and necessity instead of keeping them separate. Like if you take the soup kitchen and the theater as two extremes, what's the place where they converge? That question has preoccupied Rose since her years at Bread and Puppet, the celebrated political theater troupe headquartered in nearby Glover. Rose met her husband there, and in 2007 they formed Modern Times Theater, which brought puppet shows and vaudeville skill skits to underserved places like Hardwick, a town that holds a heterogeneous mix of families that have been scraping by for generations and next-gen farmers and artists drawn by the region's good soils and gorgeous landscapes. The modern times shows were hilarious and popular, but over time, Rose began nurturing ideas for a new kind of social theater, one that would internalize the bread-and-puppet ethos of living the society that you would like to see flourish, she said, and could be truly integrated into the life and imagination of a town. I kept saying, I just need a door on Main Street. I just need a door on Main Street. Now she had one, and it was being put to full use. In the kitchen, a nine-year-old girl named Cadence was making a giant pan of apple crisp for the free supper the Civic throws in the adjacent Pocket Park each Wednesday. On hand to offer light guidance was Civic co-founder Tara Reese. Since it was fall, Tara had set up her old cider press in the park, and locals were already stopping by to unload baskets of backyard fruit. Nearby, Cadence's father a 30-year veteran of the New England restaurant scene who was tatted up from the tips of his toes to the top of his bald head, was using his one night off to cook the main course, a surprisingly sumptuous ratatouille. It's kind of a karma thing, he explained, when I asked him why he'd volunteered. I feel like I could use a little more. A teenager named Dean was pulling Halloween costumes out of a closet and filling a rack for the Civic's upcoming costume swap. He had a curtain of black hair in front of striking blue eyes, a death metal t-shirt, and the skittishness of somebody not accustomed to human kindness. Rose and Tara had met him the year before when they taught a cooking class at the high school called Recipe for Human Connection. He was a total jerk, Tara confided to me. Like, screw you, Tara. Every day. And I was like, I'm going to get to you somehow. But he dropped out of school before she got the chance. After that, she saw him on the street almost every day. And after six months of overtures, he finally came inside and ate some food. I think he didn't have many options, Tara said. So they put him to work. He'd just been hired as the Civic's first employee, 20 hours per week. It turned out he could make a mean snickerdoodle. And he admitted to me that he'd actually had a more favorable impression of them than he'd let on. They were kind of annoying because they were always telling me to do my dishes. But they're actually awesome people. They always have a good attitude. Dean also let it slip that he was newly homeless. 
An extremely rough family situation had ruptured once and for all, and that was that. He'd spent the previous night in an old greenhouse. Rose and Tara were working their connections to find a temporary solution while keeping all the usual civic chaos on track. The Civic Standard was about to launch its next major undertaking, a pop-up haunted house in an abandoned garage up the street, and the first meeting was taking place immediately after the community supper. Rose was working her phone to round up a crew big enough to pull it off. Expectations were high. The Civic had just finished its first big show, Developed to Death, a dinner theater murder mystery featuring Hardwick citizens playing both themselves and fictional characters. The show sold out its initial run and then added a second run that also sold out, and suddenly the Civic was having a moment. We've had requests from three other towns, Rose told me. Could you come and talk to us about how to do this in our town? Like, can you just give us the script? But it doesn't work that way. To tell you to do what we did makes no sense at all, because we did it so particular to Hardwick. And yet, that specificity may be what makes the civic standard such a compelling model for other towns struggling to find ways to bring their citizens together. What happens if you look internally to generate the cultural life of your town? And what happens if you making, giving, reciprocating the foundation of that culture? And what happens if you lower the barrier to participation as close to zero as possible? No one knows yet, but a lot of people are watching. The beacon that would become the civic standard emerged from the worst darkness. On a Friday evening in January 2020, Tara's 17-year-old son, Finn, took his own life. Finn was a remarkable kid, star of the baseball team, class president, and that rare individual who could mix comfortably with people from all walks of life. And his death devastated the town. A few days later, people from every corner of town gathered around a bonfire at the high school for a memorial service. He didn't want different politics and different wealth and different lifestyles to divide people, Tara told the local paper. All he wanted was for the di different kinds of hardwick to come together. Through all her suffering, she never lost sight of that goal. It seemed really pressing to me to make sure that it didn't go away, she told me. In that bleak winter of 2020, Rose and Tara hadn't yet bonded, even though they lived around the corner from each other and had friends in common. It was this very small-town Vermont thing, Rose explained, where we'd both been told bad things about the other one, like, don't be friends with that person, she's whatever. But in the wake of Finn's death, people organized a meal train for Tara and her family, and Rose signed up. She dropped off a basket of roast chicken and potatoes from her farm and received a heartfelt thank-you note in reply. And I was like, why would I ever think this woman was not somebody to be friends with? And she was doing the same thing, Rose said. So then we said to each other, let's go for a walk. And on that first walk, we basically imagined the civic standard. Before Finn's suicide, Tara had been dreaming of opening a bakery, a place where people could hang out. Rose had been programming events for the local Grange. Both were troubled by the hardships of life in the Northeast Kingdom. You can really feel the isolation here, the extremes of a rural place with hard winters, Rose told me. The population is small enough that you can tell who is seen and who is invisible. Now we offer part two of the Hardwick blueprint. But then COVID hit, and there would be no more bringing people together. I couldn't do theater, Rose said, and I was freaking out about it. Like, what does it mean to be in a culture where people can't see shows together? What is left when you take that away? 
I was also thinking a lot about families where food access was scarce. So she decided to make soup and give it away in the Grange parking lot, and to make it a party, not a soup kitchen. Eating free soup is not immediately comfortable for everybody, she explained, but what if you get into a practice as a community of doing this thing together? She leaned hard on friends, spread the word on social media, and set up her table on a frigid January day. A friend baked bread. Others helped cook, including Tara. Rose did it the next week and the week after, and it turned out to be contagious. People started bringing mittens and socks they'd made, she said. Then a dairy farm brought chocolate milk they'd bottled. Other people brought eggs. There was this table of bounty, and people were coming and filling shopping bags. And people stood around and talked until they couldn't feel their toes anymore. It was just so satisfying. One of the people who showed up to check out the free soup experiment was Erica Heilman. For seven years, Erica had been making a quietly revolutionary podcast called Rumble Strip. Each carefully crafted episode is an unvarnished vignette of a regular Vermonter's life. It's about climbing into the first-hand experience of another person, she told me. And you don't have to like them, but you do have to love them. In that parking lot, Erica met Tara, who shared her story of Finn's suicide and the way the town had rallied. Erica spent the next nine months interviewing Tara for an episode of Rumble's Strip that aired in November 2021. At the end of Finn and the Bell, a tearful Tara relates the moments after Finn's death. As she stood in the snow and felt the remnants of his spirit filling her, just sort of got in me somehow, she says. It was like infinite compassion for every single person that had ever lived, including me and including Finn, for doing this. I remember saying out loud, oh, like I understood for just a second why we were alive. And it felt like it was for each other. The wrenching episode became a national sensation. It received a Peabody Award, the highest honor in broadcasting, and Rumble Strip was named a top podcast of the year by the New Yorker and the New York Times. By then, Rose and Tara and Erica were fast friends, bonding over the realization that their exceedingly different journeys were somehow the same. I don't think that any of us knew what this was, Erica said but I think all three of us had a deep curiosity about other humans and how people find each other across boundaries. Each in her own way was trying to solve the fundamental dilemma of being a loving conscientiousness trapped in a lonely body. Later that winter, Rose and Tara decided to turn Tara's family's tradition of burning their Christmas tree on Epiphany into a community event. They put up flyers and spread the word. Come throw your tree on the bonfire. Free chili and cornbread. It was a civic standard event, Tara acknowledged. We just didn't know it yet. People came. Hundreds of people came. The high schoolers came, and the homesteaders came, and the theater geeks came. People arrived by Lexus and by snowmobile. Cars slip-slided in the snow and had to be pushed. Perhaps it was a show of support for Tara. Perhaps it was desperation to do anything during COVID. Whatever it was, an entire town burned its Christmas trees together and stayed late, scraping frozen sour cream onto bowls of chili. It was the party I always wanted to go to, Erica said. At the end of the evening... The three women sat around the fire together, trying to figure out what had just happened and how to make it happen again. In late 2021, 
with the pandemic having dried up advertising revenue, the owner of the Hardwick Gazette closed the paper's downtown office for good. Failing to find a buyer for the tumble-down building filled with broken furniture and antique printing presses, he donated it to the Civic Standard. Down came the iconic hand-painted Hardwick Gazette sign, and up went the Civic Standard sign in the same style. The newspapery sound of the new organization was no accident. Here was a new way for a small town to tell the story of who it was, a new way to make sense of it all. Rose and Tara didn't waste any time rolling out an ambitious and somewhat ad hoc slate of programming. They taught the high school class. They gave away cupcakes on the first day of school, trivia night, darning club, fiddle classes, and jam sessions. Dinners in the park every Wednesday. So much stuff, with so little fanfare, that the practice of doing things with neighbors and strangers began to feel less like an event and more like a habit. Their greatest asset turned out to be the building. With 133 years of civic life baked into its patina, they kept it run down and ideology-free. Early on, I asked them what flags they were going to fly. David Upson, the Hardwick town manager, told me, and they said, an open flag. Slowly, their plans got bigger. They reached out to the American Legion up the street to team up for a karaoke night. It was packed, and it emboldened them for the big ask. How about a full-blown murder mystery? Four shows with dinner service. For Rose, that kind of event had always been part of the mission. Sometimes you need that huge cathartic release that only art can provide, she said. The tiny touch points are very important, but you also need the show that takes months to build. The amazing moment where the whole community gets to go. Whoa, look what we can do. Instead of a cheesy cardboard script off the Internet, Rose wanted the show to be all about Hardwick. The theme became Softwick Falls, a proposed development. The setting? A development review meeting. The developer would be murdered, of course, and everybody in town would be a suspect, of course. The Legion was deeply skeptical. They had big, big doubts, Rose said, because it's a weird idea. And then it sold out in a day. At that moment, their feelings about us changed. People were greeted as if they were attending a real meeting. They sat at folding tables with a cast and were served spaghetti and meatballs. They had their choice of bumper stickers. Softwick Falls, because it doesn't have to be so hard, or keep the hard in Hardwick. Upson played himself and was a prime suspect. Upson told me he'd been happy to let the Civic write him into the play. He thought every town could use an organization that playfully negotiated the middle ground between people and government. It's bringing down walls, he said. I see a lot of trust building. More than 20 locals wound up acting in the play with dozens more working behind the scenes or serving the meal. People hung on every unlikely plot twist. It was the town catharsis Rose had been looking for. But the feeling was short-lived. Just a few months later, in July 2023, record rains fell on Vermont, bringing with them the state's worst flooding in a century. As houses flooded, roads disintegrated, and Hardwick's only motel washed away. Upson raced to open an emergency shelter at the high school. One of his first calls was to the Civic Standard. I called Tara and said, hey, I need help. They have their people, and they've built up trust, so people respond. Within hours, the Civic went into community meal overdrive, marshalling dozens of cooks and delivering hundreds of meals to the shelter. They organized blanket drives. 
They coordinated the volunteer response. They rescued a 91-year-old man from his trailer as the land underneath gave way. When the waters receded, the Civic turned out a 100 volunteers to muck out basements, leaning hard on new friends at the Legion and their pickup truck brigade. Hill Farmstead, the celebrated brewery 10 miles up the road, put out a new beer called the Civic Standard and donated all the proceeds to the recovery efforts. It was stunning how fast the Civic had gone from a hazy idea to an indispensable institution. To Erica, that can be traced to the jam sessions, the plays, the meals. As it turns out, that's the perfect practice for effective flood relief. All that connective tissue had been forming for over a year. If you want to draw a crowd in New England on a lovely fall afternoon, just set up a cider press on Main Street. In the pocket park, Cadence and I threw the first apples into the grinder at 5.30 sharp. Within minutes, a handful of small children had gravitated to the scene and relieved me of my duties. Over the next hour, they cranked their way through a mountain of apples, while adults milled around them, wolfing down Ratutui. The woman who'd been looking for the bus to her job training program filled some to-go containers and quietly slipped away. I sat next to a man who had recently moved to the area from Cape Cod. He said he'd chosen Hardwick in part because of the civic standard. I saw their sign and got on their mailing list. It seemed like the kind of place I wanted to live. Dean replenished the water cooler one last time and then sat down and shoveled a mountain of apple crisp into his slight frame. Despite his situation, he was feeling pretty chipper. At Rose and Tara's urging, the high school principal was putting him up until he could find something permanent. Better still, he was part of a new skateboard committee of local teens who would be meeting at the Civic to try to get a new skate park built. They had even scored a meeting with the town manager. When I asked Upson about it, he said he'd been impressed to receive the invite from the kids through the Civic Set Standards email. That's democracy, he said. That's giving these kids agency. Best of all, Dean was about to try out for a role in the haunted house. He didn't know anything about theater, but the Civic had comped him a ticket to the murder mystery, and it surprised him. It was funny, he told me as we ate. Really funny. Recently, out of the blue, he'd suggested to Rose that maybe he could be in a show sometime. So she mentioned the haunted house. Scare some kids. Freak out some adults. Oh, yeah. At 6.30, it was dark, and the air had started to cool. But the crowd was larger than ever. So Tara stayed behind to manage the scene, while a handful of us grabbed chairs and carried them up the street to the garage. There, amid the dust and the old oil stains, about 20 volunteers brainstormed through the evening until they had come up with a plan that was true to Hardwick. A mysterious object that had washed up in the floods would be on display, and it would suck people into an alternative Hardwick from hell. There would be a zombie potluck with disturbingly organic ingredients a deranged select board, and a nightmarish open mic night. The meeting adjourned with everyone promising to rope in more volunteers for the set construction to come. To me, it felt daunting. They would need half the town to pull it off. But they would get it, of course. Everyone was in. This reading of Yankee Magazine has been a production of Audio Journal a proud member of the Massachusetts Audio Information Network. If you would like a hard copy of our program schedule, either in large print or Braille, please call 508-797-1117. The number again is 508-797-1117.
Archived editions of this program are available on our website, audiojournal.org, or go to the Audio Journal app on your iPhone, iPad, or Android device. I'm Mike Krasner, and thanks very much for listening. Thank <laughs> you.